do in the winter. Hello and welcome to the seventh of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode I talk to Alistair Morrison of Dervig. As you'll hear, Al was brought up in Maidenhead. His family vacationed here when he was young and eventually bought a cottage in the village. The same cottage that Alistair MacLean from episode 6 was born in. I was keen to talk to Al as he's someone who's always longed to be here. His experiences in childhood and throughout his teenage years here left such a mark on him that he always wanted to come and live here. What interests me is the gap between the dream and the reality. (laughs) Hello, cat. What do you want? What? Thank you, Fingal. That's enough. What interests me is the gap between that dream and the reality. For the first ten minutes or so, we talk about how music and culture shape who we are, and then we go into his teenage adventures, memories of the village in the past, and a little bit about his work as a postman in Salon. We also talk about one of my favourite events from the past on Mull, the box ball. The box balls were fancy dress parties in Dervig, at the old hall, where Doogie's shop is now. You had to dress up as a character from Aff the Telly. I've put a video up on Al's page on the website for you to have a look at if you want to see the absolute magic of the community coming together and having a laugh. One of the particular highlights to look out for is Kate Pittman dressed as the STV Thistle. I'm making a film about the box balls that we hope to show in the hall at some point soon, so I'll say more about that in the next few weeks. You can find the link to the short film on www.whatwedointhewinter.com Once again, I must apologise to the listeners in the Ross and Mull and Iona. I've not managed to make it down to catch up with people in the last wee while. I'm going to try and get over to speak to some contacts in the coming weeks whilst working on a photography project. I am, though, talking to a contact on Gometra, and look forward to making a trip out there at some point soon to speak about the history of the island and life there today. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm very pleased to say that this episode has been sponsored by Trishnish and Hound Cottages. The lovely Trishnish and Hound Cottages are located on a farm near Calgary, northwest Mull, and are open all year. A selection of eight eco-friendly, self-catering cottages sleeping from two to six. At Trishnish, half a mile from the main road, there are four cottages centred around the traditional farm square. Electricity comes from two small wind turbines and solar PV, while the cosy central heating comes from a wood-chip boiler. Further away, at Haun, two miles from the main road, and mentioned in previous What We Do in the Winter podcasts, there are three traditional black houses and a spacious bungalow with fabulous views. A perfect location for a remote getaway, the small black houses are romantic, peaceful and quiet, with dramatic coastal walks a few minutes away. Treshnish and Hound Cottages have been members of the Green Tourism Business Scheme since 1999 and hold a gold award for their continued environmentally friendly management. Treshnish is a high nature value farm, using cattle and sheep to protect and enhance the varied wildlife habitats on the farm through carefully created grazing management plans. There are lots of walks nearby, with four miles of coastline to explore and plenty of opportunity to look for otters and eagles. We regularly see hen harriers here and enjoyed having corn crakes in the Hound Coronation Meadow last summer. You can find us on www.treshnish.co.uk or look for us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook on at Treshnish. I'll be back at the end to say a couple more things and round off. I've also got a recommendation for a similar project to this that you can find in the Outer Hebrides. Now, over to Al. 
My name is Alistair Morrison. I was born in uh, the Canadian Red Cross Hospital in Burnham, uh, which I think was used partly as a film set, but it was, it was originally built during the Second World War and it was demolished shortly after. Um, uh, sort of a lot of people my generation were born, were, were born there. It's basically a, a series of Nissen huts in the woods. Um, uh, and I, I grew up in a fairly unremarkable suburban dormitory town called Maidenhead in Berkshire. Um, to put it into context, Maidenhead is, has a population of roughly 50 to 60,000 people when we were kids there. So it's about the same size as Perth or Inverness. All right, okay. But it has no personality. Right. It has nothing of interest in it, um, apart from a bridge built by Ismod Kingdom Brunel, which is leading out of Maidenhead towards London, which is where everything happened. But because London was 30 miles away, it may as well have been 300 when you were either a small child or a teenager with very limited funds. Yeah. So, but because of the proximity, everything that happened, happened elsewhere. Um, there were no venues, there was nothing really for young people of our interests to do. Uh, there, was, there, there were clubs for richer kids who liked sailing and cricket and things like that, but we weren't those kids. Yeah. We were the kids obsessed with books and records and art and yeah. wandering around the countryside, yeah. um, which is essentially what we did when we weren't sitting in people's bedrooms listening to records. Weirdly, when we were teenagers, um, Howie and Colin and Pete, you know, everyone up here would kind of introduce us to Focus. This is Gavin L, they're from London. And we're like, we're, we're really not, you know, <laughs> you're putting this kind of like glow of yeah. cosmopolitan glamour about us and we're not. The only good thing about where we lived really was Maidenhead butts onto the River Thames. Basically, Maidenhead stops at the River Thames. Yeah. All the people with money lived by the river. Yeah. We lived about as far away from the river as you can be and still be in Maidenhead. But that meant not very far from us were lots of woods and fields. And that's where we spent a lot of our childhood, um, just roaming around, walking dogs and just being outside. That was one of the, the few things that I have fond memories about the place for. Um, and it's one cool record shop. Mm. What, did you, what was the first record you bought there? Well, the first record I bought wasn't actually at that record shop. It was at our price. Um, and it was Ghost Town by The Specials. Oh, fantastic. And I was nine. So oh, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's... And I've always been inordinately proud of that. Yeah, that's an exceptional choice. I think my first uh, first thing I, cassette I ever bought on my own was um, in Peterhead. And it was uh, always look on the bright side of life. The cassette single, <laughs> and it got re-released. Yeah, uh, with I bet you they won't play this song on the, on the B side, which I kind of preferred immensely. And yeah, and I think there was um, was Finland on there or something. Oh, no, I'm I'm so worried about. <laughs> it was on there. It was just 
stinking. <laughs> but um, aye. So what what did having that record shop? What was the record shop called? Um, well, it was called Opus One, and it was essentially the that there were. I mean, obviously there were places like Woolworths and Boots yeah, yeah. that had chart singles and a, a WH Smiths and the R Price. Yeah. But mainly the only things we ever went in there for would be to rake through the bargain bins yeah. and buy discounted stuff. Opus One was essentially the only indie record shop mm-hmm. in the town. And I was lucky enough to do uh, work experience there when I was in oh, lovely. the fifth year at secondary school. Yeah. So I spent uh, two months, every, you know, yeah. one afternoon every week for two months working in this record shop and the first day I was there the the owner had me pricing up stuff to go in the, the bargain bin and yeah. he said if there's anything you want that's going in the bargain bin just take it so the first day I was there I left with two carrier bags full of records and, are you sure this is okay oh, <laughs> but it was just it was just where we um, it wasn't so much that we discovered stuff there although I did buy the first single by a band I've had an enduring love of ever since I got the first Bathers single, which I bought purely on the strength of this beautiful sleeve it was in, because it was 50p in the reduce section. Oh my goodness. And um, that was a lot in 1986, yeah. <laughs> the old money. Yeah. Um, and I, I bought it, took it home, and said, this is a great song. and. Luckily, they're one of these bands that released one record every seven years. So very good Glasgow style. Yeah, um, it was. It, it wasn't too difficult to keep track of them. Yeah, <laughs> but good job, the door. Hey, excuse me, Chris. Are you going to do something else now? Yes. Oh. Uh, recording at the moment. Oh, nice. um, but it, it, those kinds of serendipities of just picking up something because of the way it looked, and then finding a new world were. Yeah. You know, th- those were the kind of joys of of being. A kid buying records. These albums, they, and books and films, they create a world in your head that you kind yeah. of engage with, and you, uh, it, they're part of our emotional reality, which then makes them part of us as well. And so, very often when I'm working with people, asking them, you know, what's your favourite film? I always preface it with, "It's one of the most difficult questions you can ever answer," because it's so much part of you. Yeah. And uh, it, it almost feels like you're betraying and <laughs> part of yourself by saying, "Well, today it's the Fisher King, but really it's 2001." Or you know, it's ah, uh, it's... it's it's an almost impossible question to answer as well because yeah. there are films that you might have an incredibly fond memory, not so much to do with the film, yeah, okay. but more to do with the circumstances of watching it or totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, from obviously everyone who was hanging around when we were teenagers, is very fond of Flash Gordon. Oh, amazing. Um, Hulk's lizard man, there's no escape for you. Because it's hilarious. <laughs> it's serious and, piece of work. But, you know, th- these are the things that, that, that bind people together. It's, yeah, it's, totally. it's finding these, secret worlds. these odd little yeah. interfaces between each other. But yeah. in answer to your question, it's always Gregory's girl. It's really? always and forever Gregory's really? Girl. I think those teenage years, they're, they're like the record of our life. They etch very deeply into that. The things that you ca- you that you discover and you care deeply yeah. about then, those are the things that remain with you. The music yeah. that I loved then is still, yeah. for the most part, the music that I am yeah. fondest of. Yeah. Certainly being the, bit, the, the, the foundation from which I've gone off at tangents yeah. from. 
yeah, like you said, music giving a sense a sense of place. I I remember making myself a, a cassette compilation. Mm-hmm. That's would have been probably about eighty seven. Yeah, I did in nineteen eighty seven, and the whole point of this cassette compilation was. Next time I came to Mull, I was going to climb to the top of Calgary Hill and sit there and listen to all these songs. Uh, and it was things like Echo and the Bunnymen mm. and the Dream Academy, okay. a great song by Depeche Mode called But Not Tonight, um, the Water Boys, Aztec Camera. It was, ju- it was just all these kind of very open air songs about the sky and the sea. It was music that, to, for me, was utterly, utterly, utterly interwoven with my experience of of Mull and, and Calgary. Yeah, it's making making the world that you've identified in your head come to reality and then Well yeah. I I've I would always say that when whenever anyone asks what's it like living on Mull, I would always say, Well there are as many moles as there are people who live on Mull. Totally. Yeah. Everyone's experience is gonna be completely discreet. A lot of people's yeah. will overlap to a, a, a greater degree, yeah, but totally. everyone looks at the world in a different way. If you come here to escape your problems, you've packed them with your suitcases, they, they're just gonna come with you. It's one of the many great Ulam sayings. There's good and bad everywhere, but they're all who are from Lismore. <laughs> Quite why Lismore comes in for Aww. such. I don't think it's one of Ulam's original. I think no. it's it's a, what, from one of the the village elders from years ago. But so, in terms of when you came to Mull at first, what 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 uh, what brought you to Mull at first as a as a Wayne? We came to Mull first by mistake, <laughs> um, which makes the ensuing forty odd years <laughs> seem even more improbable. Yeah. In 1977, we were all set to go on holiday to Butte because my father remembered it from his childhood. Really? And it was only about two months before we were due to go that they got in touch with the man who they were renting this cottage from. And he said, you know, how old are your children? And mum and dad said, well, they're seven and five. He's like, oh that's going to be a problem. Uh, the, the cottage is on a main road and I have a rule that I don't rent it to anyone with children under the age of 10 in case... There comes the, the, the Yeah. Um, so suddenly, with two months to go, there's nowhere to stay. Um, so they, they look around a wee bit and they find a cottage available. I don't even know how they found it because this was... It must have been an advert somewhere a cottage for rent in Dervig and so we came to stay at Rockdale okay um it was owned by the Robertsons Robertsons Robinsons who stayed at Glenview at the time up at the top of the village um and we loved it we absolutely loved it it was great wee cottage it was right in the middle of the village there were railings to hang off out the front I distinctly remember Obviously, the summer of 77 was roasting, mm. but I distinctly remember being told by somebody that Elvis had died at the gate of Rockdale. Oh, my. Um, I had no idea who Elvis was. 
I was five. That's the one memory, I, a definite memory I have of that holiday, other than it being sunny and there being beaches. And, and we'd come to this place called, I misheard it as the Isle of Mole. Oh. And I, I imagined a big green mole hill yeah. in, a, in a blue sea. Um, but we had such a great time that we came, we, we decided to come back the next year. And I think that next time me and my brother Gavin started to get to know a few of the kids in the village. Right, okay. um, so we came back again and the rest of the time we stayed in a caravan uh, out the front of the Smitty. Oh, down okay. by the river there that was owned by um, Betty, Betty and Callum McGowan. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that was really when we started knocking around with everyone yeah. in the village. Who were the first people that you remember getting to know? Very early on, because we were at the Smiddy, there'd be the very young Callum yeah. Duffy. Yeah. Um, and then we got to know the Gleasons oh, yes. quite well, so the you know we'd, we'd be hanging around with Anna and Sonia, and then it was it was Pete McCrone and Howie Pittman, and then event we got to know Colin maybe a year or two after him because obviously with him being that like two and a half mile mile, yeah. mile and a half away at Penmore, yeah. when you're when you're ten eleven twelve, yeah. that distance is, is is far greater than when you're thirteen fourteen yeah, you know, right. um, but. Oh, and, and Pete's big brother Ewan as well, who was very much part of the gang then, right, you know. Okay. Um, and yeah, there were there were specific places where people used to hang out. Yeah, everyone used to hang out at the Big Bridge. Yeah. Uh, the Wee Bridge was in the village, which was yeah. far too public. But the yeah. Big Bridge, yeah. you could hang out at the Big Bridge and you could run around the little hillock that's next to it yeah, and yeah. have... No, 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 not do the nail. The, the wee one that's right by the bridge oh, really? that has no name um, or that I know of. Um, we, we used to spend a lot of time climbing around on that, running around it. And if you got really bored, you could even try fishing off the bridge yeah. um, and catch nothing, which put, pa- put paid to fishing quite early on. So, yeah, this is dull. <laughs> um, so, and then after that was the kind of focus of everyone hanging out and just sitting and talking and watching the very occasional car go by, the Church Hill became the hangout. Right, okay. Um, and I, I went and climbed the church hill. Climbed the church hill. It's about <laughs> three steps. Uh, it's very steep, though. Very, very steep. About, it was week before last. I was just walking back from the village and I thought, I've not been on top of the church hill for years. Yeah. And it's so overgrown now. It's quite clear that no one ever goes there. Oh, man. And we used to spend. It's quite flat at the top. It's yeah. Really nice it's an, um, the view from it's beautiful. Oh, we built, I remember us building a bike course there one summer. We had huts in the in the gorge. Um, it was it was a place to go and sit at night. Yeah. Later on, where I believe snogging occurred. Goodness me, um, goodness, you see. I I that 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 was that was much later uh-huh. for some of us. <laughs> much sooner for others of us. Um, How is your brother by the way? Oh, he's fine. Yes. But. Yeah, it was weird how the, these places be- were really important for a few years, yeah. and then gradually they receded, and the the focus changed again to the legend that is the Imperial Vortex, a damp, smelly caravan at the bottom of the Pitman's Garden that, for us, was 
just the most amazing place. Probably only for about three or four years as well. It was a very, very short period of time, but yeah. the just the joyous silliness yeah. of the, the stuff we made up yeah. has, I think, stuck with everyone who was part of it. Totally. Um, there are people I see very infrequently, and they it, it's still part of people's personality that, that they that they experience this daftness. Yeah. Um, and did you sleep in the vortex as well? Occasionally, if drink had been taken and you couldn't make it home. Um, <laughs> That was usually me. Well, <laughs> um, hope wasn't very far away. Then. Yeah, but <laughs> when you're 15 and you have no head ad- head for alcohol, uh, uh, Moniac Castle Silver Birch wine packs a punch. Oh, <laughs> it's very dry. Oh, it's very dry. Yeah. It was one of those crazy things that it wasn't there one year yeah. when we were up, and then the next year it was there. And obviously, for the guys here it had probably developed over a, a yeah. period but there was suddenly this thing and that that really did become important of course in the intervening years my dad had spent all his life savings and his inheritance and bought a cottage in the village which i should f- feel guilty about us being second homeowners because i know it's a disastrous problem but i would like to think that if you had to be second homeowners, my parents would be quite a good model for second homeowners. Um, they are so engaged in the community and always yeah. have been as well. So the cottage itself, again, it, it it shows the difference of the times. The cottage had been on the market for something like eighteen months. All right. Um, Who'd lived so, there previously? It had been a holiday home. All right. um, a couple from. I think Edinburgh way, called Bobby and Jean. Um, But they decided to sell up. And it wasn't in great repair. Um, It wasn't a lot of money, but it was a lot of money in in terms of anything I understood, you know. Um, But yeah, as I say, it had been sat on the market for... A uh, year and a half. No one in the village had shown any interest in buying it that I'm aware of. And my mum, my dad's mother had passed away the previous year and left him, he'd been left a small amount of money from that. And I, it was the end of our summer holiday in 1984. Mum and dad basically sprang it on me and gave, we've just bought a cottage in the village. And we were like, what? How, what, where, what, 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 yeah. How does that even work? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> they they found out on the on what was meant to be the last day of of our holiday, and Betty at the Smithy was like, right, you're staying an extra day. You know, you, you have to stay an extra day because you need to go out and celebrate this. Oh, so right. I think my parents drove us home with the worst hangovers ever in the oh, world God. ever. Um, but we hadn't even been inside the cottage. Um, before or until we came up that October. And essentially the pattern for the next two or three years was set was we'd come up with a car loaded down with dogs, children, a roof rack so packed, wrapped and tied that you couldn't get into it without a crowbar, full of all kinds of stuff. 
and mum and dad were supposed to be on holiday but they would break their backs kind of doing stuff in the cottage and yeah. we being well-behaved caring teenagers just buggered off and did whatever we wanted and came back demanding food um but they must have yeah. loved that though as well that sense of making something for themselves would be great it was it was just turning what was essentially quite a damp empty shell into what suddenly it it felt like a home yeah even after probably probably the first time we came we've changed a few things and you know the parents were very very rigorous about making sure that the cottage was let out to someone uh, in the village, whether it was a young couple who were sharing their parents' house or someone who was staying in a caravan during the summer, it was always let out over the winter. Yeah. Uh, it was never, you know, kind of just for us. No, no, um, and so, in in that sense, and you know, for a peppercorn rent as well, you know, just yeah. um, that. That's how so many of us have survived. That's what we, you know, we survived like that with the winter with yeah. uh, with friends renting places to us and that it's it makes the difference it means you can live here uh, when you've got when you've got nowhere else it's um it's remarkable and it, it allows you that kindness of friends allowed us to eventually get enough to get our own place in the end but that's the thing people forget about well not forget but people who come here now and, and look at Derweg now they would not recognise the Derweg of the, the early to mid-1980s when Happy Valley was full of very ramshackle caravans that people were essentially living in yeah. month, month to month. And there weren't a row of new-build houses yeah. virtually to Quinnish. And all those new houses up above um, uh, the Bellacroix, yeah. none of those were there. Uh, in fact, Kate Pittman used to keep her horses in that field. That field had had a unique feature that none of us questioned at the time, and we used to go and you know muck about with it, and um, and it's only until recently it suddenly occurred to me, how on earth did a cannon get in that field, and why was it there? There was this massive cast iron cannon. I mean, I can I can understand why there would be. A, why it might have been joined to the cannon trolley on the lighthouse path, yeah. but why it was sitting in essentially a bog on a hill behind the Bellacroix, I have no idea. Friday nights. It was heavy. We, we, <laughs> managed, we managed to get it upright once, Whoa. and we used it to launch a rocket. Yeah, we lit a rocket and dropped it down. It was, was it, did it work? Was it good fun? Yeah. Um, it was much less practical than our mobile rocket launching bazooka. Ah. that was made of a pogo stick shoulder launching rockets oh, out of car windows uh, uh, yes <laughs> yes <laughs> and were those um, uh, fireworks from Pittman's shop that had somehow come into your possessions they they may well have been and they may well have been um, past their best remaindered stock in which the gunpowder was less than stable oh my god <laughs> <laughs> they were quite sparky, I oh, seem to remember. What happens when you're shaking really hard? <laughs> oh, but yeah, it's just it's things the like that. Over it's across like, the big bridge. <laughs> there was a damn cannon in this field. It just and it you just I kind of that. yeah. Yeah, so what? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you.
characters you you mentioned Pete, you mentioned Howie, you mentioned Colin, uh, you mentioned uh, the Gleasons as well. But when did you first meet Esther? What was what did what did you think when you first met Esther? Well, to go back slightly before that, the the one thing that I think defined our kind of growing up and for me getting woven into the surrounding area was the way our childhood kind of roving grounds expanded as we grew older. Initially we went everywhere on foot and we were all fairly young so you know it was pretty much within the village environs. Like walking out to Quinnish to go and see if Brennan was about was oh. was quite a big thing, you know. Yeah. Um then people started getting bicycles um, and essentially the minute we'd turned up in the village and unpacked the car, there'd be a knock at the door and be like, can Gavin fix my bicycle? And it would be either Andy or Colin or Donald from Burn Bank or Pete or, you know, because yeah. Gav was incredibly good at mechanical stuff. And yeah, yeah so he... Still is. Yeah. And so he he basically kept the village bikes going when he was here and we we had this very ramshackle assortment of of bikes so that expanded where we could go to so that led to us going on mad bike rides to calgary and round to toloisk and back over the hill and, um, but <laughs> again we forget how little traffic there was back then and Five of you could go off on a ramshackle assortment of knee scrapers, bone shakers, and yeah. bahuki numbers with about half the number of brakes between them as there were bicycles yeah. and safely go around the top of the island yeah. without worrying anybody yeah. or getting in, in anyone's way. Yeah. Um, and then motorbikes made an appearance. There oh. were a few mopeds. Oh. Gavin bought an old 50cc trials bike from Colin oh. that he did up. Um, and so suddenly two people got to go slightly further, slightly faster uh, Gavin and whoever got on the pillion which is usually Pete because he was the smallest <laughs> and so the rest of us would turn up half an hour after them puce in the face and expiring and they'd be like, what's taking you so long? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been smoking <laughs> yeah. been, well, Pete, never, Pete was the only one of us who never smoked right. the rest of us did, unfortunately um, yeah, we got here at 30 miles an hour on the 50. <laughs> and then, obviously, people started driving. Yeah. Um, so well, that was a magic moment. And, yeah, when you've got your, the car, it's just the, the world opens up to you. It's and then brilliant. a few years after that, when people actually had licences, we could actually go further. <laughs> um, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. um, Some of you would go on the roof, yeah. I seem to remember hearing as well. Yes, and on the bonnet. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Sitting in the boot with the boot open. Oh, that's a nice. That's a nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there was an awful lot of silly, bit, silly bad behaviour. But to return to your question, um, once once we'd started to become a bit more mobile, yeah. and we started doing things like having beach parties at Calgary or oh, Black wow. Sands or whatever. And the first time I remember Esther was, I think, at a beach party. At, um, as you know, it was, it was maybe maybe before that, but I was terrified of her. I couldn't speak to her. She was because she's a pretty lady. She was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. She was so cool. Uh, I mean, she she was into Prince and Led Zeppelin, and she had a Sex Pistols T-shirt. In 1987, that was pretty damn cool. And she was from Edinburgh. You know, she was from a bona fide city. You know, I, 
we were always introduced as being from London. We weren't. We were <laughs> we, we were suburban hicks, as I said. Um, so she was, you know, she was beyond cool. Plus, her and Howie had a wee bit of a smoochy thing. Um, so you don't. No. You, you never never rub another man's rhubarb. Exactly. So I, I never spoke to her really as teenagers, but you know I I did remember her being this this stunning stunning beautiful woman. And then fast forward, oh, goodness, nearly fifteen years I suppose to Colin's younger sister Cooch, getting married to Phil. Esther decided to come back to Mull for the first time in about twelve or thirteen years to go to the wedding. And the reason she knew the Morrisons was because her mum had been at art college with Pat. Yeah. So they came up to the wedding. And the night before the wedding, I walked into the Bella Croix. And standing in the middle of the public bar was this woman I remembered from my teenage years. And she looked exactly the same. <laughs> and she was still stunningly beautiful. But luckily, I by that point, I had developed the confidence born of being utterly certain that I was done with relationships. I was just not good at them, so best thing to do was live a wonderfully aesthetic life with my books and my records, and, you know, I wouldn't get in anyone's way. An art monk. Yeah. And I would I would just sit here and catalogue the 1980s indie scene for my own in- entertainment. So I would be fine. Um, so I, I'd made that decision about six months prior, and it was great. Um, so I said, wow, this amazing woman. Oh, you're Esther, I remember you. It's great to see you. Um, and Howie was up for the wedding. And so the, the, it ended up with a table of essentially me, Howie, Colin, Esther, I think Brennan and Pete were there as well. Nice. In the lounge bar at the Bella Croix oh, where we all used to sit lovely. when we were kids. That's so nice. Rehashing stories, Jimmy making each other so laugh nice. like... Yeah, uh, reimagining Jimmy and Angus singing Prince, which had <laughs> always been one of me and Howie's greatest party pieces. Um, and just laughing like drains. And so, of course, by the end of the night, I was like, damn, that single wife thing might not be happening now because I've met the girl. Um, and so much so that she was getting a lift back to Penmore that night in a minibus full of people. I hopped in and sat next to her from the Bella Croix to the church corner, which is, what, 20 yards? Yeah. Just so no one else could sit next to her. Um, Main. That, and that, but I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't make any moves. And then the next day was the wedding at which me and Howie and our dear pal Julie Bewley yes. were... Meant to be ushers. I I have to apologise, Kuchenfall, because we were rubbish. <laughs> um, and I seem to remember seeing the wedding video, and all you can see is my head bobbing around. Looking for Esther. Where, where's Esther? Uh, is, is is no one chatting her up? Oh, oh, no, no one's chatting her up. Oh, yeah. oh, right. And then come the wedding dance, we were actually the one thing. Me and Harry and Julie were we were good at handing out drinks. <laughs> we made sure everyone one had a drink. One um, <laughs> So I, I, I plied Esther with, with alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, made sure her mum had a seat and got her a, gentleman, you. a soft drink because um, she didn't drink. No. Um, and then later on in the evening, during the dancing, uh, I was standing next to her and I decided that I had better 
you know, faint heart never won fair maid. So I, I had to put my arm around her and she didn't move my arm once I put it around her. So I thought, damn, that means I have to kiss her or at least try to kiss her. And so I kissed her and she kissed me back. Thankfully. And I decided then that I didn't want to stop kissing her mm. and I haven't uh, but and here was... she is now <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was just one of those right place right time things yeah. we were what the other was looking for at the time what was the key thing that made her go okay I'll come to tomorrow I own my house she was in rented accommodation right. and she wasn't really enjoying the job she was doing it so it was she was uh, an usher at the film house at the time. She was in the box office as well, wasn't she? Well, she'd only just started doing the box office, right. which she wanted to do for years. Yeah. And and so she 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 came, she sublet her, her room and said, well, I'll come to Mull for six months and see how it goes. And I think we were about a month into that six months when she said, yeah, I don't think I'll be going back to Edinburgh. Um, that's great. So, and that's... 15 years ago now, virtually. Um, yeah. But as my brother very sagely said to me once when I was being maudlin, when I was living in the north of England, and saying, you know, I'm not happy, I, you know, I, want, I want to go to Mull and find a woman who loves Mull and go to Mull with her. And he said, well, you're far more likely to find a woman who loves Mull on Mull yeah. than you are living in Cheshire. And I was like, do you know what? You're probably right. <laughs> Um, it's much smarter than me, my brother. I just, I just want to be in that room above the shop at Pittman's because that was the best room to hang out in. You could see straight up the village street. You could smell the amazing coffee coming up through the floorboards from the shop below. Mm -hmm. And the toilet ghosty would bite your bum. Yep. And <laughs> you could sit there reading old Victor annuals and Tintin books, looking I through mean. our scrapbooks, <laughs> maybe watching. Gladiators or the A-Team or the Dukes of Hazard on the telly, and it was just one of the it was just one of those places where we all used to congregate. It was essentially the unofficial youth club, after, especially after the Vortex was sadly demolished in about 1990 or whatever. We actually kind of idolised all these yeah. all these eccentric people that were in the village because it's great to have that kind of breadth of life. People think oh, this is a tiny place, yeah. it's going to be very straight-laced. And there is a kind of unspoken element of that from some quarters. Yes. But on the exploded fringes, there are always these wonderfully eccentric characters who I have a terrible feeling I've actually become one of them. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> I'm nodding furiously. <laughs> so um, at what point did you decide to come and live on Mull? That would have been round about November, December 1998. I was working in a record shop. I was actually managing a record shop by that point in North Cheshire. I, I was moved around 
the, the shops quite a bit. I was living in Crewe, but I'd worked in shops in Macclesfield, Wigan, Altrincham, Northwich. I'd mainly been based in the shop in Crewe, but I'd then been switched over to a shop in Winsford. It makes Runcorn look a bit sexy. Runcorn's where they filmed Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. Okay. Yeah, Winsford is bit of a step down from that. Okay, that's um, <laughs> Good evening to the people of Winsford. How nice to have you with us tonight. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it's common in leaps and bounds. It may have been coloured by my, my temperament at the time. I was struggling because when I started working in these record shops, they were really cool independent record shops that did really cool stuff. Like they, they used to organise coach tours for people to go and see bands on the continent. That's lovely. And, oh, like and that. yeah, things like that. It, they were... And, I, when I started working there, I ran the second-hand department in one of the shops. Yeah. But we had a very discerning clientele of people who came in because they knew there were knowledgeable staff. Well, I remember the final straw for me was when I got... that They stopped letting us order our own stuff and we, we, we got yeah. what we were to sell yeah. from a central order that they'd put in. And they sent something like 20 copies of this five-CD box set of... A hundred of your favourite classical music pieces, and I was just like, "This is motorway service station stuff. This is not what we should be selling." I went home for Christmas down to Maidenhead. Well, it wasn't really home, but I went back to Mum and Dad's for Christmas, and just if it said, you know, I'm I'm just not happy. I I don't like where I live. I've really only got one person that I like around there. I don't have much of a social life apart from going to the pub far too much. Mm. Um, I don't like my job anymore. All I can think of is I want to go to Mull. And complete and utter kudos to my parents that they instantly said, well, if you haven't moved to Mull by this time next year, we're going to be very disappointed in you. Towards the end of January, I was having a a slight altercation with one of the managers. And I said, do you know what? I'm packing it in. I'm, I'm resigning. Um, I don't want to live here anymore, so I don't want yeah. this job anymore. Um, and he actually looked at me. He said, why don't you want to live around here? He couldn't understand why I didn't want to live in Cheshire. So I, I packed that in. Um, and in my slightly confused state, I, I had this kind of weird idea that I would move to Glasgow for a bit. Oh. See how that went. To be near Howie or what? Well, I, uh, initially I was mooching, I think I was mooching a bedroom off Howie and Becker which, in their wonderful flat in the West End, which was very cheeky of me. Um, but I, I was only there for, I think, maybe a week, two weeks. One day the phone rang and it was Ian Morrison from Penmore asking if Howie was free and wanted to come and help get the boots ready for the summer season. And Howie said, well... No, I'm, I've got a job and I'm doing a course at the moment, but Al's here and he's at a loose end. Do you want to talk to him? Yeah. And so the next day, me and my one bag of all my worldly possessions that I had at the time uh, were on the train up to Oban where I met Ian and we went down to Balvicar and started painting the boats. By another wonderful stroke of luck, Oki McCrone was going to stay in a caravan that was on the croft at Penmore, but then... Actually, no, it wasn't Oki. Oki was my neighbour in the other caravan. So a caravan on Croft at Penmore became available for the summer. So I moved into a caravan um, and continued helping getting the boats ready, stuffed envelopes with flyers, 
answered the phone a few days and then by the time the season started up I'd got some work in the kitchen at Calgary um, when it was still Calgary Hotel yeah, yeah, yeah. working with Gail yes. and a couple of shifts behind the bar at the Bella Croix oh, nice. uh, working for Dave who was the owner at the time and terrifying thing is that's seven owners ago now of the oh, Bella Croix <laughs> it's just mad uh, and I have to say I was I was a I was a distinctly average KP and a distinctly below average barman working behind the bar in the Bella Croix was was certainly entertaining yeah. most nights um, occasionally a little bit daunting um, and occasionally incredibly depressing but um, yes all human life was there yeah, very much so. in various states of dress, undress, drunk, undrunk. Um, but so that that was the pattern of my life for a few years. And then Gail came to work at the Bella Croix. So we worked together at the Bella Croix. And then she went to work at the pottery. And oh, right. I just cooking at the pottery. Could, yeah. Uh, um, Pete turned the upstairs into what is now Pebbly and Lodge. Um, so I decided that I was slightly less average as a KP front of house waiter than I was as a barman. So I asked Gail if I could go and work there with her. Mm -hmm. um, Where were you staying at that point? I had two years in the caravan at Penmore, two winters in Cregan right. um, as the tenant, one of which I, I shared it with Pete. But then, in another incredible stroke of good fortune from misfortune, uh, my mother's aunt passed away. Yeah. She left her house to my mum and her sister, and this house was for sale in the village. And I had nowhere to stay permanently, and so we hatched the plan that Mum would put up the money for this place and I would pay her back Fantastic. with with rent. Again, the bizarre thing was this house was for sale for less than plots were being sold for at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even going back to 2001, 2002, when I bought this place, it was, it was not a lot of money. Mm. There's not a day goes by that I am not grateful for any of the any of the people that helped yeah. us get on the way to where we are now i mean it's and it's a long continuum it's not over yet the journey's not over yet absolutely not no but it's it's strange how it, there are little things that happen along the way that um you don't quite realize the import of until five years down the line absolutely. um just you know the odd person saying oh you might get a job you might get a shift behind yeah. the bar at the bar. I think that was actually Helen McCrone who said you could probably get some work at the pub. That's why I went and asked. And um, it was Kay who asked me if I wanted to do a couple of shifts on the post to cover some holidays. Yeah. And that got me into, into working on the post. Basically, Dervig and it's it was a landscape of imagination. Yeah. You got out of it as much as you put in, and yeah. we we just poured 
over everything. We used to be slightly sniffy about the Tobamori kids. Um, we called them the Tobamori trainer monsters because they'd sit around the clock with their spanking, you know, blindingly clean mm. trainers. Mm. And we'd all be there with, you know, like a bit of sheep shit on your trainers. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of how I still like, you know, I love you're comments. not living life properly unless you've got a wee bit of sheep shit on your shoes. Your working life for the, the vast majority of your time here has been in Salon though, hasn't it? Well, again, it, it happened slightly by accident. I was work, I was based in the Tobamori post office covering the rounds there and a need arose for someone to go and cover around in Salon. I was slightly resistant to it because, you know, it was Salon. Yeah. That was 12 miles away. It's very far you know, away. Eight miles is about the limits of my, <laughs> oh, my abilities these days. <laughs> yeah. um, so I went down and at that time the post office was still being run by Nan Cameron, who was just a wonderful woman. Wow. Um, and Catherine McKeever was her young assistant. Yeah. Um, so to go from the slight chaos of the Tobamori post office, because, I mean, it was a very... Tobamori post tiny office was safe. tiny, yeah. and it had the post office and, and, the, shop. and the shop, yeah. and out the back this tiny room with three postmen sorting their mail in it. And it was just... To go to that, down to the post office in Salon, where there were two postmen, me and Colin McLean, who stayed down at Fishnish, um, who was, at the time, the Ulver Ferry Run was still a post bus. Oh, wow. uh, the most useless post bus in the world because it could take people as far as Ulver Ferry and then pick them up again three quarters of an hour later and that was it. <laughs> it was basically, he, he would do the run and then come back and that was the post bus route. I mean, that's kind of why they got rid of some of the post buses because they, they weren't really any Bus. use. So I went down there and, and we used to sort the mail by hand, side by side on a tabletop smaller than this mm -hmm. um, because it was before the internet um, and everything was essentially just letters, yeah. catalogues and the very occasional packet and parcel. Um, so we'd stand side by side, I mean that was for you, that was for you, that was for you, that was for you, then you'd roughly sort into mm -hmm. the area and then you'd hand sort them into the order you were doing them and you could probably fit everything into one plastic post box maybe a, another one for a couple of the bigger parcels and that was your day um, and, now, and now we unfortunately appear to be a subsidiary of amazon.com yeah. I, I do remember when when the when the day the computers came. Yeah, that was a wonderful... Can you say a little bit about that, actually? Yeah. Because that was a, something people maybe away wouldn't actually know. Um, it was this scheme. I, I, I have no idea where the scheme originated, um, which governmental body, or which, even which government. But the, the essential idea was to connect remote communities um, by giving them access to the internet and to make that access free for a year so everyone anyone who lived permanently on the island was eligible um to take part so you basically rang this number and said this is who i am this is my address 
am I eligible? And they would say yes or no. And then Amazing. about a week later, a computer would turn up. And compact, was it? A compact computer. Yeah. Um, and it would sit in a box. Unless, like me, you, you actually unpacked it. And when the wee felly came around to put it all together, because obviously you needed a technician to put a computer really? together back then. Uh, he was like, oh, thank heavens you've done that. You know, lots of people haven't done that. It takes ages to get these things out of the boxes. He would um, connect it all together and plug your dial-up modem into your phone port. And you would be connected to the, the exciting world of Wanadu broadband. Was it Wanadu? I think it was Wanadu. French. Yeah, I had Wanadu when I was um, in France. And it, there were all these weird kind of provisors, like you, you only got an hour at a time and you had to reconnect. Um, yeah. um, even downloading one picture took about two minutes. <laughs> the things that people now mainly use the internet for, things like MySpace, Twitter, they just didn't exist. Well, MySpace doesn't exist anymore, but... Uh, I think it's still there. I think it's there. I don't really? Know uses it. I <laughs> Facebook and all the... They, People. They, they just... <laughs> They just—they—they they were not there. No. People sent emails, yeah. and even Amazon was only in America. Yeah. And Amazon, I remember Alta Vista all the way, baby. The the very first time we did internet shopping mm. was Brennan got a computer before any of us because he was running the business, yeah. um, and we went and sat around this computer and ordered CDs Ooh. from America, oh, yes. uh, and they took ages to come. probably came here with a slight rosy tinted view of things because of all the experiences of coming here yeah. prior to that um you know it's a difference between being on holiday somewhere and working somewhere um but i think also even by the time i came here the the way the village community worked had started to shift slightly yes and most of that i would put down to television um i mean progress is inevitable you can't you can't change it but back in the days when it's quite an isolating device the telly it? was very intermittent yeah and three maybe four channels if the tide was right um people did do much more community-based things, like, as you were saying earlier, the Beetle Drives, the Wish Drives, the Box Balls, the box balls the discos with all the girls sitting down one side of the hall, all the boys sitting down the other side of the hall. Nobody speaking to each other because they were just terrified. You, know, No one ever crossed that floor. It was just... Even couples that are married now. <laughs> I mean, there is nothing more terrifying to a teenage boy than three teenage girls standing with their arms folded. I mean, it's just, it's beyond terrifying. Um, but they were just such wonderful events. Yeah. And, yeah, the box balls as well. Yeah, the first one we went to, yeah, amazing. we came up the day before. We had no idea it was on. So our costumes were basically invented on the hoof. Um, what, what were the costumes? They are fantastic. My father went as uh, Shogun, uh, <laughs> uh, because that was quite big on the telly at the time. So he was wear basically wearing a sky blue 
uh, Terry Towing dressing gown, <laughs> a homemade headband, and a very fancy sword that he's made out he'd made out of a hazel stick. Yes. Um, my mother went as Andy Pandy. Yes, um, with a teddy bear as well. My teddy yeah, my my teddy bear Frank. Um, uh, wearing some old sheets that were being used as dust sheets. So she basically lay down on the sheets, we drew round her, and she sewed them together in the shape of her body. My brother went as a Smurf. Which is absolutely fantastic. Um, a wonderful Smurf hat made of a tea cosy, wrapped in a pillowcase. Bit of blue poster paint on his face. His own blue Just lead paint. His own blue sweatshirt and a pair of those um, joggy bottoms that were grey on the outside and white fleece on the inside, just turned inside out. <laughs> and I went as Neil from The Young Ones. Uh. In essentially my mum's painting clothes, that was a wonderful ribbed pull neck, bright orange jumper, a pair of old flares, a pair of flip-flops that came from Pittman's shop, an army greatcoat that had been hanging in the hall for about 12 years. No one knew who, whose it was. <laughs> Since the Great War. Um, a rain hat from Pittman's and a hank of brown wool from Pittman's that we just basically turned into, turned it into a, a great big circle of wool, cut it in half, tied a knot in the middle of it so it looked like droopy long hair and tied it under the rain hat. Yeah, th th those were the things that, you know, they were all very, very fresh in my mind, yeah. even though they'd been years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, 13, 14 years prior to that. Um, and things like, as we said earlier, you know, the films that David yeah. Pittman used to show. Yes, th these were things that were still there in my mind. So when, when I did come up here, and as, as a group, people like myself, Colin, Brennan, Callum Hall, Howie, Ventus. Fiona Boo, we tried to put on a few discos at the hall. Oh, lovely. Um, That's brilliant. We felt like that, you know, there was a sort of continuation. Unfortunately, they, I mean, I'm sure everyone who went to them had a great time, but they did become notorious for underage drinking. <laughs> Um, but that that was the other way, that was one of the actually that was one of the slight weird things there, there was this two maybe two three year period between the old hall mm. not being there and the new hall being built yeah and a lot of stuff stopped in that period yeah. and never started again yeah. that was 96 to 99 wasn't it yeah. yeah so and things like you know the football seven stopping yeah uh, when, when these things stop they tend not to start again, and that's that's I think the the the, the warning, uh, and again it's it's just people expect them to always happen, and they always expect other people to organise them, <laughs> yes. and then when they don't happen they complain, and then when they stop happening they they complain that they're no longer happening, um, so yeah the the, I think the biggest change is. There is less just popping around people's houses. It used to be you'd just pop in someone's house, have a cup of coffee, tell lies, be on your way. But that happens less. And even as you know, as kids, we'd go around to grown-ups' houses, you know, and just hang around with with people. There was no kind of age barrier. Yeah. I'm actually envious of the experiences that we had as kids growing up here because we had such freedom mm -hmm. and 
we met so many great people who are all still more or less in each other's lives. We may not be in touch yeah. regularly, but there is this kind of, there's a whole group of people scattered around the country um, who came to Maidenhead, came to Mull, went to mad parties in Bolton, we all went to gigs together, we went to festivals together and it wasn't always the same groups. Yeah. Um, sometimes the girls from Edinburgh were more present, sometimes you know we didn't see them for a year or so and it was just, it was such a brilliant thing and You're very lucky I'm be. so envious of, as I say, of us and I'm so pleased that we still have some physical mementos of it. For years Howie had kept the door of the Vortex because everyone signed it mm. um, and there was also the Vortex sheep that Gav made um, which was a bit of a mascot, a chipboard sheep wearing wellies with the Imperial Vortex written on its side. Nice. Um, thankfully the cod piece got lost. We had so much fun and I'm I would be very sad if there are young people on this island who are thinking about going away to college or thinking about moving off the island who haven't had as much fun growing up as we did because that would be something to regret keenly in later life because being silly is about as good as it gets. And being silly with pals, yeah, just yeah, pals are just so so important. Yeah. And whenever I see any of there's a family you make, yeah, you, they're the family you choose, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and whenever I see any of them, you know, um, there's just it, it does it, it gives you such a lift of the heart just to think, you know, oh, I've seen we've seen each other at our best, we've seen each other at our worst, usually in the same evening. <laughs> it feels like I've I've always been on Mull, even though I haven't, and it always felt like like home, even though it wasn't. Yeah. I didn't understand what people who lived in Maidenhead wanted. It made no sense to me, whereas everything we did here made sense to me. So I figured that if what you're doing makes sense to you, where you're doing it is probably the sensible place for you to be. Thank you again for talking to me, Al. I really, really appreciate it. And if you'd like an extended cut of Al and myself talking about music, films and politics, please let me know and I'll send you a wee bonus episode. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be working uh, my way up the Hebrides with a film education project. And I'm looking to see if there's anybody who'd be interested in talking to me in Barra, the Uists, Harris and Lewis. If you want to drop me a line, I can be reached on what we do in the winter at gmail.com. That's what we do in the winter, all one word, at gmail.com. Talking of which, there's a great project online called Gunanyelan, Island Voices, which has lots of interviews with people of the Hebrides around different themes and topics. It's well worth your time to have a look at. There's a wealth of knowledge and stories stored in those pages. You can find it at www.guan.wordpress.com and Guan is spelt G-U-T-H-A-N. 
That's www.guthan.wordpress.com. There's a page there dedicated to Norman MacLean, who was one of the great tradition bearers of our culture, a true polymath whose light shone very brightly indeed. Thanks again to Caroline and Somerset, our sponsors at Treshnish. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm also looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a steak bake, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather you listened than not. And on that note, thank you to the anonymous donors for your donations. I greatly appreciate it. Many thanks. And indeed, thank you to everyone who's written to say hello and uh, make contact. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. As ever, the webpage, www.whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Morning, thing. Shinu.